0: Um, Hello everyone, it'll just take me a little while to get set up here, a few moments. Um, There we go, almost. Yes, good. And, uh, yes. Almost there. Need a bigger lectern. Let's pray. Father, just pray that you'll use my word as a word coming from you, empowered by your spirit, so that we might know you better so that we might repent deeply of our sin, so that we might look to your empowering grace, so that we might be better servants of you. Amen. Uh, A beautiful time in our life for Elizabeth and me was in the late 1980s and early 1990s when we were going to Ashfield Presbyterian Church. And one of the reasons why it was a beautiful time in our life was that uh, often our friend Ross with his lovely wife, would invite uh, several of us to go uh, to Norton Street um, down at Leichhardt where all the Italian restaurants were. It was just a great time. Uh, We really enjoyed their company and the company of our friends. But Ross was a man with a mission. He was in search for something. He was in search for the ultimate, the ultimate focaccia and he would go each Sunday after church. He would choose the, um, the restaurant and we'd go in and of course there'd be a new focaccia which he could taste and expound on. I don't know which restaurant in the end he decided was the best. It probably doesn't matter now. Uh, but he was full of missionary zeal. In 70, 1785, An English cobbler read the biography of a person called David Brainerd. It was written by Jonathan Edwards, apparently. Brainerd had been a missionary to the American Indians. This cobbler, after reading the biography, left to be a missionary in India in 1793. His name is the famous William Carey. In 1802, a British preacher was speaking about the good that Carey was doing in India. A young man in the audience, hearing the message, decided that he would also go to India, instead of, as he was planning, going to law school. Henry Martin was his name, but he died young. Subsequently, Martin's memoirs were read by Anthony Norris Groves, who then became a missionary in Iraq and later in India. And this is what Groves said. I have today finished reading for the second time Henry Martin's Memoir. How my soul admires and loves his zeal, his self-denial and devotion. How brilliant, how transient his career, what spiritual and mental power admits bodily weakness and disease. May I be encouraged by his example To press on to a higher mark. Three men of extraordinary missionary zeal for the lost and in our passage today we see Jesus' missionary zeal for the lost. Yes, in the cleansing of the temple. I wonder how that is shown. Well, the only way to find out is to uh, proceed to our passage. And what I'll be doing is that I'm going to first of all work through the passage just explaining what it said. And then I'm going to look at four principles arising out of the passage, particularly looking at the significance of the temple cleansing and where it took place. And then I'll be looking uh, from those principles for four applications regarding our lives. Now, let's uh, turn to our passage. And uh, you'll notice there, That uh, It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at temples exchanging money. So there's the context. Now where's this occurring in the actual temple? The answer to this is it's a court where the Gentiles came and worshipped God. I'll be saying more on this later on. It was the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, as I said. And oxen and sheep and doves were sold to be sacrificed there. Doves and pigeons in particular were the sacrifices for the poor. You can read about that in Leviticus 7 if you're interested. And while all this was occurring, of course, there was the changing of the coins. Uh, What on earth is happening there? Well, first of all, They were busy days for sellers of animals, for the sacrifices and for for all the money changes. And one of the reasons is, is that people would come from all parts of the empire, often bringing with them the Roman coinage, which had on it images of the emperor, and often on the back uh, perhaps a member of his family, uh, or a Roman god. So they were idolatrous images. And of course, according to the Ten Commandments, you must not commit idolatry. So the coin changers were there to change the coins into Tyrian coinage, Uh, or, of course, at a fee. that was uh, reasonably exorbitant. But so that uh, there was no um, idolatry committed in the temple precincts. That's how it worked. And of course, they were also there to collect the tax that uh, had to be paid of half a shekel, of course, for the temple. The Romans had their own tax on Judea beyond that. Now we find out that Jesus, observing that whole scene, then made a whip out of cords and drove them out from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, as I was sitting there in the morning, I suddenly remembered a camp that I spoke at uh, in Queensland many, many years ago. Um, And uh, I think there were around about well over 100 um, teenagers and uh, young adults there. And I decided, uh, since I was speaking on this passage, to do some audience participation. So there they all were. Many of them with coins in bottled jars. Uh, um, sorry, in jar bottles. In whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And, and they were to shake them. Then there were the people who had to imitate the the bleating of the sheep. There were then those who had to imitate, of course, the, um, the whatever cows do or bulls do, the moo or whatever. I, I don't really know, but they were pretty good at it. And uh, then, of course, there were the people who were doing the cooing of the pigeons and and whatever, uh, and the doves. And so here I was sort of orchestrating all of this, and they were just rocking on. This was audience participation. Uh, It was fun, and, uh, and I was explaining what was happening in the temple and all of that. And there was just this enormous racket going on, making the point. What they didn't know... Was that I had a six foot two Jesus hidden out the back, He was dressed up accordingly in ancient dress, who had his cord of whips, who then burst into the whole scene, knocked over all the chairs, empty chairs at the back that I arranged, scattered one particular table that I'd also arranged, and then proceeded to bellow face to face at all of them going around the audience. And then, of course, cited the very text that Jesus cites, as we're going to find out in that passage. I tell you what, no one laughed. No one said anything. They were deadly quiet. You see, that's the point. Because Jesus burst into the scene unannounced. And as one commentator said, it was as much the moral power of Jesus, not the physical force, that drove them out. Just the look of the holy anger on Jesus' face would have terrified them, just as my six foot two Jesus, bellowing at them face to face in that context unexpected, grabbed my audience and made the point. interesting thing, isn't it? Because Jesus is really stirred up by how God's name is somehow being violated by this activity. I wonder how it is being violated. It's the standard practice in the temple. We'll get back to that in the uh, the future, in a few minutes. But it poses the question, when we see God's name, when we see God's holy character being treated with contempt, What's our reaction? Do we have any reaction at all? If not, why not? What does that say about our own lack of holiness, our own lack of zeal for God? Do we realise that the grandeur of God really matters and we have to take that seriously? Now notice in what happens in verse 16. Jesus says to those sold doves he said Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now that's an extraordinarily bold thing to say. I'm sorry, Jesus, it is not your house. It is the house of Yahweh. But no. Jesus is unequivocally clear on it. It is my Father's house. My Father's house. Double blasphemy. He possesses the house and he is the son of the Father. You see, here we see Jesus' self-consciousness that he's the eternal son and that reverence for his father's house matters. We see here Jesus' deep concern that somehow the spirit of worship was being destroyed at the very door by this distracting racket of business and whatever else was happening. Verse 17, his disciples Remembering that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's an interesting text. It comes from Psalm 69 verse 9, the psalm that we read at the beginning. And it says that the zeal, the zeal of Jesus will consume him. I wonder what's meant by that. Well, at one level, it's sort of like me with Hornby Trains several years ago when I just continuously was consumed by them and would literally buy them on the internet until one day we had an explosive amount of money to be repaid on them and Elizabeth threatened as she rightly should have that if I bought one more she would cut up my credit card. The problem stopped overnight but it had consumed me for a good year or so. Things were difficult at work, and it was lovely just rocking up all the time to the post office to get these new packages for trains. It consumed me for a while. Jesus' concern for his Father's character consumed him in a positive way, as opposed to the negative way in my case with Hornby trains. But the context of the passage is important because remember that it comes from Psalm 69, verse 9. And you'll be quite well aware, those of you who perhaps uh, picked up a few of the interesting tones of that psalm as it was read out. For example, verse 4. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. So he's got a vast audience of people who are hating him more than the hairs of his head. That's a lot of enemies. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. So they are out to kill the psalmist, David. He says, I endure scorn for your sake. And shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. He's an absolute outcast. And why is this, for zeal for your house consumes me? That's the context of the psalmist. So while there's a zeal that consumes you, and that takes over your whole direction of life and interest, And that certainly is the case of Jesus. There is also a zeal that will destroy you. It's a zeal that consumes you just as a fire consumes dry grass in a bushfire. And that's going to be the case with Jesus. Because he's consumed by the glory of God, his relationship with the Father as the eternal Son, and because he's consumed with the parameters of his mission, he will be consumed by the fires as if in a bushfire. He will go the way of the cross. The enemies will start making their plans against them now, and they'll ensure that they get rid of this troublesome person. You'll then notice that having said that, very challenging address to those who sold the doves in verse 16, the Jews rightly see the implication of what he's saying and it's idolatrous blasphemy. And in verse 18 they say, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Of course his opponents think he's talking about the Herodian temple, which of course was being uh, rebuilt and would uh, of course uh, only be finalised at the time of St Paul before it was destroyed in AD 70. And they make the point, it's taken 46 years so far, this rebuilding project. What are you talking about? But John has already made the point that he was talking about his body and that when he was raised from the dead, that would be the proof of his authority. John has already made the point in John 1.14 that Jesus tabernacled amongst us, full of grace and truth, To put it in another language that's more accessible to us, Jesus templed amongst us full of grace and truth. You see, he is the temple. His resurrection proves that he is the new temple and we are made part of that temple as his Holy Spirit dwells in us in the church as the new temple of God. And all of this is justified by the historical event of the resurrection. So there it is. It's an astonishing passage. But we still haven't gotten to the core of the matter, really, have we at all? And here we have to think about the significance of the temple cleansing. And here I'm now moving into my four general principles. Point number one. Jesus' actions are directed towards establishing the proper use of the court of the Gentiles. A little bit of background here. What we have to understand in the Jewish temple was that there was the court of the Gentiles where Gentiles from all over the world could come and worship there. But that was your court and you could go no further because there was a boundary and at the boundary were notices and we learn about this from the Jewish historian Josephus, and also inscriptions and the Temple Mount have been found showing this, which said that if you're a Gentile and you proceed past this point, you will be killed. Then there was the court of the women. I'm sorry, ladies, you are sitting in the wrong place amongst us in the first century context. You should be out in that room there. So women were separated from the men. Then there was the court of the men. And then there was the court of the priests, where the sacrifices would take. And then there was the court where the Holy of Holies was, where the high priest went in to sacrifice once a year for Israel and of course for himself being a sinner. So where could the Gentiles worship? in one place, and they couldn't go into another court because they'd be killed. They couldn't go outside of the temple because they couldn't worship there, that's outside. And they got this wonderful racket of sheep bleating, cows mooing, pooing, birds, money changes, absolute racket. And you are supposed to have your quiet time there worshipping the God of Israel as one of the Gentile fodder who are excluded from the mercy of God in the eyes of some Jews. And Jesus says, that is not on. Because the outsider matters. Because the Gentile is going to be called into the people of Israel. And they are going to be one, Jew and Gentile, together in unity, worshipping God, as Paul brings out in Galatians 3.28. And remember what Jesus said in Luke 19.46, in Luke's version of this, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. It wasn't a house of prayer for the nations, was it? With all this calamitous stuff going on. No way. And you have made it a den of robbers. What's Jesus saying there? This is he referring to the fact that somehow his real concern is those money changers who are making so much profit? No. What's being robbed is the right of the Gentile to come into the temple and to worship God without all of this interference going on. And in this massive temple system with its money and whatever, its sacrificial system, the rights of the Gentile to come into the temple without this hassle and to worship God was being stolen from them. We ought to be very grateful for that because we live on the back side of the earth. We are exactly that group of Gentiles that Jesus was concerned for here in his cleansing of the temple. So great principle number one. Certainly as a subsidiary issue, yes. Certainly a protest against the greed and the materialism that occurred in this temple court, yeah, certainly. Thirdly, more importantly, we see here Jesus as the Messiah, eager to vindicate the glory of the Father. And fourthly, he's more than the Messiah. He's the eternal Son. It is my Father's house. He's the one who always had intimate relations with the Father eternally. So now to sum up, four applications. Simple questions. Question number one. Are we really zealous for God's name or character when it's treated with contempt? Or do we just sit stupidly by? It's often difficult to handle, isn't it, when people blaspheme God's name? or say outrageous things about their faith. It requires wisdom and preparation. You just don't blurt out something on the spot. But we need to prepare ourselves to think about how we will react graciously and wisely to people in that context and how we can remind them, perhaps, of the glory of God. Secondly, Are we really stirred up by injustice and evil? You see, it was unjust and evil, wasn't it? That the Gentiles were being excluded. And Jesus is really stirred up by it. And so should we be stirred up by injustice and evil. Thirdly, are we really concerned for the outsider in God's body. You see, in any church there's always insiders and outsiders. It's just how it works. And what we need to do is that the insiders show concern for the outsiders so that the outsiders become the insiders and all the differences are, are blurred. That's what we got to do. So are we really concerned for the outsiders in God's body? And lastly, number four, are we really turning our religion into some gimmicky type of business? I think it's always a great temptation, isn't it, when um, things are difficult and the gospel is hard to get out into our culture and uh, it's just easy to compromise the truth a little bit and to work out some sort of gimmicky way that we can get people in. We might get them in as was happening in the temple in the uh, first century context here, but we might be dishonouring God immensely in the whole process. No, let's not turn our gospel into some gimmicky method of getting people in, but to proclaim its glorious truth to the glory of Christ and the Father. Amen.